Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. I'm joined today with obviously my lovely co-host Matt Offenbacher, and we got a special surprise today. Our solids control advisor decided to take time away from the rigs, take time out of his busy day. This gentleman goes by the name of Lionel Lujan. Lionel, how are you doing this beautiful day? I'm doing good. Excellent, excellent. So you just told us that you got up extra early today so that you could make time to come on the flow line. Is that right? That's correct. So how many days a week do you spend in the field, do you think? Right now, I'm averaging about five days a week. So five days a week out in, and where is that at? Over in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. There you go. And then on your two days off, do you go to the beach, fishing? Or what are you doing on your days off? Oh, I'll go to the, yeah, Midlands. Known for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to think you don't take days off because you're a busy, busy man nowadays. No, no. When I'm in town, I try to go play golf, go find my golf balls between the mesquites, you know? Yeah. <laughs> go to Fort Worth, watch my kids play soccer. Excellent. As far as my social lives goes. Hey, that, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, Matt and I had been talking and, you know, Saul's control plays such a major part of what we do on the drilling fluid side. You've been with us for a while now. You, you've added a ton of value by, you know, getting your hands dirty, getting out in the field, evaluating systems. And before I go any further, you know, I'll let you explain it because I certainly won't do nearly as good a job as explaining what you do as what you are, but, but really would just like to get you on and help answer some questions, maybe bridge the gap for, for folks that, you know, may not have an understanding as, you know, as a mud company for us, you know, we, we don't have a, you know, quote unquote, solids control division, but having, you know, experts like yourself, part of our team certainly helps, you know, what we do on a daily basis. And we can go into that, but Lionel, why don't you go ahead and, and just kind of tell us, you know, where you're from and, how you got in the oil field, and we'll go from there. I'm originally from Mexico. I was born and was there till about, I was, I think, eight years old, and then landed in the beautiful country of Midland, Texas. There you go. Where, where in Mexico are you from, Lena? I am from a little town, border town called Ojinaga, Chihuahua. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So what brought, what brought you to the beautiful land of Midlantis, as I like to call it? My parents. Okay. And you were eight years old. I was eight years old. Wow. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was curious. Oh, no, no. Just eight years old. And my friend used to, my friend's dad used to work around my SWACO. And they offered me a job as a mud engineer. And when I went to take my mud test, my math test, before I went to mud school, school had already started. So they told me, well, MI, solace control is hiring. We you think on that. And got hired on and was there. That's how I started with solids control. Because MI, the mud school was already full. I got you. How long were you at MI and how, how long did you do solids control for them before coming over to AES? I did solids control for MI Swaco for 10 years. Hmm. And from there, I did a couple of stints with other companies. And then I was always interested in pump jack. So I went to work for Weatherford. Ah. <laughs> 
not a glamorous job. Just putting a puzzle together every single day, <laughs> going pretty quick. Yeah, and that so, was that all out in West Texas in the Permian. Yeah, everything was in the Permian, yes, sir. Okay, so can you drive around the Permian with your eyes closed by now? Sadly, I know every dirt road from here to New Mexico. <laughs> yeah. How when when you started? How busy was it? I mean, is it is it like what's your biggest observation from when you started? You know, driving around. To now, I mean, you must have seen the growth and just the busyness evolve. What was that like? When I started with my Swaco in 2007, we were super busy. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think we were about 200 rigs. That was a big deal. Then. Right. And then when the boom happened in 2012, when it skyrocketed, that's when you saw the traffic come in, people from the outsiders come in. Then this is that's when. It got real, real bad traffic-wise. Hotels were going for like $400 a night. Mm. I mean, just passing through jail was a nightmare. Still is a nightmare. Hmm. Yeah, that hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. So I would imagine back then, I mean, they've got an HEB there now and things are looking up. Was was We got two HEBs now. What are you talking about? What? Well, see, there you go. That's, I mean, that's growth at its finest. I like that. Has Midland itself changed? I mean, because, you know, I, I know folks that, you know, even from Canada and, and all over the world, if you've been in oil and gas, there's a pretty decent chance that, that you land in Midland at some point, especially now with Permian being, you know, arguably one of the most prolific plays in the world. Has the culture changed or, or would you say kind of the the deep roots of Midland and West Texas still remain? Because that, that always interests me, you know, when you get people from different parts of the world to come and live and you know, they bring part of them into the, to the little city. Does that change? Or would you say Midland is kind of have it that, that, that same Midland feel? No, Midland still has the same Midland feel. That hasn't changed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, simple as don't tell a Midlander he's from Odessa and don't tell him from Midland. <laughs> right. See, that's funny. I thought that was going to change because so many people have been, you know, housing is so expensive. There have been those neighborhoods popping up in Odessa and you still got to be careful. No, if you're from Midland, you'll pay extra to live in Midland. As simple as, I mean, it, it is what it is. If you come from outside, then yeah. Like you come from Houston, Dallas, Pennsylvania, then yeah, you go to Odessa. It's no big deal. But if you're local, yeah, it's still a big deal. I mean, you can edit this, right? So hopefully you do. <laughs> we have a saying over here, right? You want to raise your, you want to raise your kids? You live in Midland, you want to raise hell, you go to Odessa. <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I, I believe it. I get it now. That is too funny. So, and I don't remember what year it was, but when Friday Night Lights came out, Lionel, was that was that pretty exciting for you guys out there? Oh, because, well, for Odessa, for Odessa it was. Right. <laughs> Good point. I Wrong told you, city. Right, I know. But, you know, growing up in Canada, when you see those types of movies, you can only imagine what it's like. And, and I thought when I drove through Odessa for the first time, it was going to be almost like a Hollywood setup. And that's definitely not the case. But No, no. People get disappointed when they come. <laughs> right? No, but that's good. You know, you, they, hold, they hold true to their roots. And I, and I can appreciate that. So, you know, it kind of getting more on the mud side of things, Lionel. So, you know, you, you work and you've been out there forever now and now you're working with AES. So how would you describe your role and, and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis and, and perhaps some of the, and actually we'll, we'll ask questions after that, but, but yeah, again, like describe to the, to the listeners what, what you do here with us. Well, my primary reason with AES is interlight. That's the injection systems, the recovery. 
that's about 80% of what I do for eight years. Once in a while, I'll get a call from a field supervisor for eight years or an account manager that they're having issues either with low gravity solids or barrel recovery. When I go out there and do some recommendations and we adjust, I mean, adjust the equipment, see what we can do. But that's my primary job with AES. Interlight then helping out where I can regarding solids control. Right. And that's, you know, even, I mean, there's obviously a ton of rigs that, you know, aren't using Interlight, but the operational support is, is something that's extremely valuable, you know, and how would you go about, you know, when, when you get on a rig, you know, obviously when you get out there, there's equipment out there that doesn't have AES's name on it. And you have to go out there and, and pick it apart and maybe, you know, try and find, you know, ways to improve the systems. What kind of challenges have you faced by doing that? Because, you know, sometimes people get a little defensive. And so I would imagine that, that you know, you're probably used to it by now, but. I am kind of, used to it. But okay. No, how, I, how do you handle that then? No, it, well, obviously I've hired a couple company men, roll their eyes at me, whatever. And solid control companies, they definitely push back. They definitely push back. But I've gotten a couple solid control companies once I started adjusting their equipment to a point to where they called me and told me that I was welcome to touch their equipment anytime I wanted from here on forward. I mean, and then I still got solid control companies to, to this day will push back no matter what. So when, when, when companies push back, how do you sort of, you know, with that objection, how do you handle that? Do you just kind of lay back or what's, what's the best approach for something like that? The best approach is like I was telling Matt earlier is I just tell him, look, guys, if this thing doesn't work, I'm a dumbass. And if it does work, everybody learns something to do. Right. Seems to get them off my back for a little bit because they're trying to make, trying to, they're probably think they're, they're thinking they're right. Or they're thinking they're doing things right. And then, like I said, I'm still back 1000 on that. It's, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think it's, be a, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Leonel. I think it's just such an interesting thing because you have these folks' equipment and you're there to help. You're just there to make everybody better. You know, our concern is that our mud bills go up because we have to dilute more and the customer gets upset. And so we want to make sure the drilled solids get out of the mud. And you're there to just help make sure that happens. And yet you're sort of stuck in the middle of an awkward conversation where maybe the solids control folks feel like they're being put on the spot and that they might fall in, you know, a bad position with the operator for things you point out or, you know, whatever. And it's never easy anywhere, but I can just imagine in kind of the, the tense situation of being in the field and, Hey, I, I think you could do this better. You know, it's, it's probably hard for a lot of people to come down from that and, you know, accept some help, but it's gotta be affirming when those people call back and say, you were right. I was wrong anytime. But then I can imagine other folks that's just, that's tough. I think even for myself, sometimes I struggle with, you know, I'm not as willing to listen to ideas as maybe I should be sometimes. So as much as you are mechanically inclined and understand this equipment, you also, I think our managers know about getting along with the rig crew. You've got to get along with a very diverse set of competing interests sometimes. No, and it, I mean, you can never get accustomed to it, right? Because some actually try to get not violent, but you can tell they're irritated by you being there. But again, it, the ones that been there more, the more irritating. I mean, to this day, they still call me if they have issues. This is solid control personnel. 
Yeah. And, and again, it, it comes with the territory, I guess. It, I, I always tell them, look, guys, this is your equipment. At the end of the day, you know the limits. You know how hard you can push it. If you need a call supervisor, call supervisor. I mean, you're not going to hurt my feelings. The more eyes we put on this, the better. I'm here to help. I'm not here. We don't have solid control equipment. We're not trying to get you uh, run off. We're trying to get things going better for our benefit. And eventually, they come around. There's only a couple of solid control companies that still don't come around. But for the most part, all of them have come around. So, Leonel, when you get out to a rig, are there some you know common issues or things that you look out for when evaluating a system, can you kind of walk through your process on, on how you evaluate solids control systems, just very high level to try and diagnose or to try and improve on, on what's out there? Cause that's what it is. It's not necessarily trying to completely reinvent the wheel, but it's just a kind of improving or building on what's already out there. Right. Well, like I was saying, man, solids control is a very simple process. We overthink the room sometimes and nothing that's what gets us in control. When they send me to a rig to evaluate, I mean, Nine times out of 10, it's a low gravity, low gravity solids. So the first thing I ask is like, what's our mud weights? And, and the second thing is, what's our mud weight on the effluent side? What's the centrifuge sending you back? And that's when I evaluate right there. Well, like when we're running a weighted system, let's say, it takes a 12 pound mud. I do my calculations to where how much will my mud weight weigh without bearite on the system. And from there, that's when we start adjusting centrifuges till we get until we get equal to that mud weight or lower from my calculation. Okay. Do you feel like with respect to kind of the, the evolution of equipment, you know, what do you think, do you see some advances happening now and kind of even throughout your career what are some of the big changes and, and maybe some of the things you're looking forward to that, that you're starting to see? I mean, to this day, BFD says to this day is still the best change that's happened to solid control equipment. Shakers are still shakers. Nothing we had in mind. We have Derek. They have coming different types of shakers. But at the end of the day, they're still shakers. Yeah, but centrifuges, what? When it comes down to centrifuges, yeah, the wear and tear on them, it's better now. They last longer. I think that comes with because of the BFD. They don't have to hard start no more. So, yeah, when it comes to technology and the changes, yeah, BFDs has been, in my opinion, has been a game changer. Can you describe what that is, Lionel, for maybe the listeners who aren't familiar? The variable frequency drive centrifuge. You can have a soft start instead of just kicking on 100 miles an hour. I mean, you can slowly get it to 100 miles an hour. If you will. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what's the benefit? And you kind of described it. What, are there any other benefits to, to having that type of system? Or, or can you do more with it? I mean, for West Texas, not really. Either we're stripping or we are doing bear recovery. There's only two things we do in West Texas. But for other parts of the world, yeah, you can target microns. Certain RPMs. Certain pumps. Yeah, you can... You can target a specific micron to the point you want to. No, that that offers definitely some some flexibility. And so, d- has that eliminated the need for more equipment? Has it has it basically reduced the footprint on location? I mean, no, no, no it hasn't. We have some solid control companies, a few of them now. They're starting to 
compact their equipment into mobile units. That definitely reduces footprint, but tradition, I mean, for what's in the field out there right now, no, it hasn't. Footprint still, it still takes a lot of room in the backyard. Gotcha. Do you suspect, you know, in, in years to come, is, is there any sort of technology or anything that, that's coming down the pipeline from any of the solids control companies that, that you deal with? Because, I mean, you see all sorts of different colored paints out there. Is there anything kind of exciting without, you know, maybe naming some names, but is there any type of technology that you see kind of interesting or, or maybe that even that you wish companies would, would maybe look into or, you know, just to continue to evolve? Is, is there anything that comes to mind? No, no. I mean, not that I've seen here. No, no. Again, it's, they brought out vertical dryers. You see them here once in a while, but something new that will change other than chemical help, like, like polymers or anything like that. No, it's still, at least for this area, there's nothing new and exciting on the dollars control world, if you will. Well, you know, I think it brings up a, a good point, though, Lionel. You know, I, I like, I like that you you take a very practical approach, and you're kind of, as somebody who's probably, well, definitely spent more time in the lab than in the field at this point in my career. You know, I tend to be very careful about making suggestions, trying to understand whether they're practical or not. But one thing that I feel like I continue to circle back to is, as much as I get excited about what technology can do for us there's a lot we can do right now if we just get the fundamentals correct. You know, we try and do that through the podcast. We try and do that through a number of initiatives, but some of this stuff is really already within our control. And it sounds like that's, you know, a lot of what you focus on is, is the stuff that you can do right then and there with the equipment that you have. Exactly. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we overthink the problem. We think that if we put a new gadget or a new toy, it's going to make a difference, but I mean, we already have something that works. Can we make it better? Possibly. I mean, that's why they're coming down with bigger centrifuges, more RPMs. But at the end of the day, we're we're cutting we're cutting mud, right? Yeah. Still doing the same thing. Leonel, what what keeps you motivated in, in solids control and, and what like what excites you when you get up every day? Because it's a grind. I mean, you're driving out, you're dealing with equipment. You're dealing with folks that aren't on your team. If it's, you know, obviously if they work for another company and, you know, maybe company men or, you know, company representatives, is there something that really interests you? Uh, I mean, have you always been mechanically inclined? Like what really gets your, and, and, you know, gets your gears going, if, if you will. Me personally, I go to a different rig almost every day, different people, different company men, different sales control, different mud engineers. Everybody has a different personality. So my day is never boring. I mean, I do drive a lot. That's probably the most boring part of my day. Mm-hmm. I'm not at the same rig every day, just looking at the same rig, the same drilling tower, the same driller, the same company, man. It's, for me, it's, it's different every day. That's pretty much why I guess I still get up early every morning and take off with no hesitation because something different is going to happen today. Something might meet somebody different today. It sounds like you are able to build some relationships though, I guess. You know, there's one thing when I was a technical specialist, I never went back to the same rig because it was project by project. And I guess hopefully after you've gone once, they listen to your advice and maybe they don't need you to come back again. But at the same time, 
do you feel like you do get to build a few relationships and kind of network out out in the field when you go into so many different places? Yeah, especially the rigs where they send me to advice on mm-hmm. equipment. I go back regardless. Mm-hmm. Even if everything's going, everything's still going good. I, I go back. How's everything going? Everything good. I mean, just to follow up on them. Yeah. Well. Lionel, you may, I think we maybe talked about this once, but way, way back in the day, I got some training in solids control and I even, I went to a little three week solids control school. And so I was doing drive ups in East Texas where we would just go, you know, grease the centrifuges and say hello. And if something packed off, free it up. But one thing that I learned was we would, we would show up and say hello. Sometimes we'd give some things to the rig crew. And then we learned that those centrifuges would start packing off fairly regularly. And we kept showing up with Cokes and pizza and the centrifuge kept packing off. And then we learned that the rig hands were packing off the centrifuge because they associated Cokes and pizza with the centrifuge packing off. And so it was just a a different way of building some relationships and having to learn. You want to, you want to make friends with these guys, but you don't want to make such good friends that you have to see them all the time. What I give them is aloe water, believe it or not. You give them what? Aloe water, like aloe vera. Aloe water, yeah? Yeah. My mom loves aloe vera water. You're That's the, you're the second person that I've ever met that even knows what, what, what that is. I had it in Romania once, and they like gave it to me like, oh, this is what we drink here. And then they all watched me drink it to see if I would. And it was like, wait, it's it's weird here too? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> no, I found that they sent it, they sent it at Walmart. And I love it. So I started giving them to our hands first and drilling uh, mud engineers. And they're like, you, I'm watching drinking. They're like, I don't know if I should. <laughs> Everybody loves it. So that's what I give them, believe it or not. Aloe water. <laughs> that's hilarious. But they don't pack off the centrifuges to get you to come back out and bring more, right? Not my centrifuge. That's true. Them. That's true. <laughs> D- different equation there. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. So, Lionel, is, do you aspire to continue to just solve the world's centrifuge problems? Or, you know, where do you see this whole thing in 10 years? You think we'll even be using solids control? Will automation take over the world? I mean, what's your crystal ball telling you? Uh, automation is eventually coming, right? I mean, I think somebody somebody's working for mud, come, I mean, checking. So, yes, possibly... You still don't need the human element, but instead of using two guys, you have one guy overseeing three rigs. I think that's what's coming to, I mean, less manpower. Manpower will always be there. I think eventually technology will catch up and we'll be, we'll be replacing manpower. Yeah. And then yeah, the sensors will break and you'll have to fix those. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so then you have a robots. Yeah, you have a sensor for a sensor. Uh, I mean, that's what we're getting to. No kidding. Yeah, no, there's certainly push on on that type of technology in every part of drilling, but time will tell. I wanted to to leave the listeners with with some some kind of some you know nuggets, if you want to call it that. But if if a mud engineer is on location, and you kind of touched on them briefly, but what what are what would you say that the top three or even two, whichever ones, whichever ones you feel are most important? What's the first thing mud engineers can do? that may not be familiar with solid control equipment to really just see if it's working properly. Like assuming you're busy 100, 
you know, 50 miles away and, and there's no one that can go there. What's sort of some action items that mud engineers can do to, to start evaluating the efficiency of, of their system? The simple, uh, number one, is get a sample from an effluent and wait. That's, that will be the number one teller. That's and what are they looking for? They're looking for a nine pound or less of uh, this oil-based oil based mud. Okay. Look, look, uh, you can get it to nine pounds, you're fine. You can get lower than nine pounds. Then, yeah, you know it's working. But if you see anything over that, yeah, we got some efficiency issues with the mm. equipment. Either they're processing way too fast or not fast, or the centrifuge is not rotating fast enough. Gotcha. Okay. And then from there, you know, you just sort of continue to, to look deeper into different parts of the circulating system, you know, within the yeah, centrifuge. It, yeah. Let's say he, he gets a mud weight that is not where it needs to be but they are processing super slow, then yeah, that's, that's when we probably have an issue either with the pumps or the centrifuge themselves. Right. Okay. No, that's a, that's straightforward. And, and like I said, simple. And once you see that, then you know, folks can go ahead and diagnose it even further or get in contact with their representatives and away you go. And yeah, I, I like that. Keep it simple and check the weight and go from there. Yeah. When, that's what I tell them. Don't tell the exhaust control guys how to do They know how to do their job. Yeah. Tell them, if you're a mud engineer, tell them, look, I'm looking for an eight. Let's give him an eight, seven number. Yeah. And if you have a good solid control hand, he'll get you to an eight, seven. Okay. And is, is that dependent on, I mean, that eight, seven, that's, or let's say eight, seven to nine pounds around there. That applies to pretty much any weighted system? Pretty much. Because again, I do my calculations to pretty much. What if this particular mud system did not have barite? I'm, I eliminate all the barite from the. Mud system. What's my weight? I see. Okay. So when they got a 13, I mean, this is the biggest issue I've encountered. You're, you're running a 13 pound mud weight through the whole active system. And yeah, there's centerfish taking out a lot of discard. So you're, you're like, oh, it's working. But your effluent is at a 10 pound. So yeah, you're cutting it down from 13 pounds to 10 pounds, but you're still leaving a lot of barite on the on the effluent, and you're not getting rid of barite. You're definitely not getting rid of low grabs. Right. No yeah, and that's an important thing for people to remember is barite's heavier than low gravity solids. So if you're talking about gravitational force to separate this stuff in a centrifuge, the barite comes out first. Yes, and in order to get out of the low grabs, you have to get rid of barite first, right? So. I mean, that's, again, I'll keep it as simple as possible. And that's, the, that's why I tell the money you look for those effluents. Excellent. Well, Matt, do you have any more questions for Lionel? I know he probably wants to get back to a rig or start crunching some more solids calculations. Yeah. Jal's waiting, right? Now, I've, I, you know, Lionel, you've been such a valuable resource to us in so many different ways, certainly with Enerlite Recover, but uh, just solids control in general. And we try and remind our customers that we didn't put them in there, but they certainly get mad when we report that they're there. And so all the help you provide certainly helps us, you know, serve our customers. And I think, you know, we, we may follow up with something a bit more technical on equipment or at least pick your brain on it before, before we do it. But I think just, I think the big picture simplicity, I, I really appreciate how you presented that. So thank you for being available. Oh, anytime, man. That's what I'm here. Well, Lionel, certainly appreciate it. And again, for all the listeners out there, thank you so much for your support. If you could like, review, and share the podcast. And you know, maybe not every single episode is going to be valuable, 
but there's certainly a, a library of topics that we've covered all throughout the you know drilling fluids world. So feel free to scan. And if there's something out there that you'd like to hear more about or Matt and I to dive into further, please reach out on LinkedIn. We're always active on there. We've got an email as well, the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. And on our website, there's also a spot for some giveaways. Please check that out. You know, we're starting to do things a little different. We're continuing to evolve and grow and, and offer even more value and things to our listeners. So with that said, everyone, please be safe. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.